0: Hello and welcome back to The Killer Kind. It's your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. I hope you're doing really well. Now, this week, I have something a little different for you guys. Today's episode will cover two different cases. And I'll explain why, because I don't normally do this, obviously. I don't think I've ever done this before. So the second case that I'll be covering is just too good not to share. It involves basically three idiot criminals, but the main one being a dumb husband. I won't give any details right now, but just so you know, you're going to laugh a little bit. You're going to be also frustrated and annoyed at the end as well just like always just like most of the cases I cover here recently it seems like. Um, Now this case really didn't have a ton of information and I knew it would be a pretty short episode if I covered it just that one by itself. So that's why I'm going to throw in another case for you as well. Both are interesting. I think you'll enjoy them both but not enough information on either one for me to put like a 30 plus minute episode out there. So Now, before we dive into those two cases, I have to announce that I'll be going back to episodes every two weeks instead of once a week because I just feel like it's taking too much of my time away from my family. So I need that two weeks to kind of take my time with it and make sure I get out a good episode for you guys, as well as spending enough time with my family as well. So I'm sorry to those that were dying for me to have weekly episodes. It's just way too hard for me. And I hope that you understand Um, With me having a full-time job and a beautiful family. I want to make sure my time is not taken away from them. And I want to make sure I get good episodes out for you guys, because I do feel like I'm more rushed. And so I rush episodes instead of giving you good quality cases every week plus i hate inconsistency and i've been super inconsistent with episodes lately so i want to get back on track If I have extra time and I can put a shorter episode out in between time, I will. So be sure to turn on your notifications wherever you're listening so you're notified when I upload an episode. That being said, we've got some good stuff coming up here on the show. My favorite month is coming up October. It's my all-time favorite month, which means we'll have all Halloween-themed episodes in the month of October. So stay tuned for that. I'll be working on some Halloween music for those episodes, among other things. So be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram to stay up to date on everything. That's at killer.kind.pod. So be sure to check it out. So with all of that said, let's get into today's cases, kicking it off with the murder of Jason Harper. Jason Scott Harper was born in Glendale, California on October 30th, 1972. Jason graduated from Glendale High School in 1989. He attended college at UCLA, where he was a member of the UCLA volleyball team, which won three NCAA state championships. He went on to graduate from UCLA in 1997. Then he continued his education by earning his master's degree in education from Chapman University. His parents raised him to love education, so Jason was very excited when he got his perfect job at Carlsbad High School in Carlsbad, California, teaching math and coaching the volleyball team. His co-workers called him a gentle giant. He was a big guy with a soft heart, especially for his students. He was an exceptional teacher. Actually, one of his students said that she actually enjoyed his class but had never liked math before. And his students always had a higher pass rate when in his class. Just wonderful at his job, a wonderful guy in general. Now, it wasn't long after college that Jason met a beautiful blonde by the name of Julie Elizabeth Syak. Julie was a Harvard grad, and her family came from money. You know the cheesy story. Beautiful rich girl meets a guy from a blue-collar family and Julie was definitely her typical spoiled rich girl who wanted it all. She really wasn't sure she wanted to marry someone who was just a teacher. But nonetheless, the two got married on November 4th, 2001. In just two short years, they moved into their dream home, which was in a gated community on Badger Lane. Houses in this community back in 2001 started at $400,000, which was Obviously, more than what Jason could afford at the time on his teacher's salary. But thankfully for them, Julie still received an allowance from her father. So, apparently, this nice new house wasn't a problem for them. The two went on to have three children, two boys and a little girl. It was after the birth of their first child that Julie decided she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And this was not something that Jason necessarily wanted her to do. And this is when the two started arguing and really kind of where their marital problems began. After the birth of their second child is when things really started going downhill for Julie and Jason. Julie was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition that required her to take medication. By 2012, Julie was addicted to this medication. She had become a hoarder as well, and she had started spending their money on all kinds of things. Julie rarely came out of a room. Jason worked all day, coached volleyball, he'd come home and then take care of the kids, which at the time were 1-year-old Josh, 6-year-old Jackie, and 8-year-old Jake. Neighbors said that they would always see Jason out walking with the kids in the neighborhood. They'd see him pushing baby Josh in the stroller, while the other two would ride on their scooters behind them. Now, one neighbor said that Julie was the quieter one, more standoffish towards others, and what neighbors couldn't see was what the house looked like. The house was a wreck, apparently. Jason did as much as he could, working and taking care of the kids, and he couldn't keep up with his wife's hoarding problem. Julie was maxing out credit cards, taking money from Jason's bank account, and hiding it from him. And she was taking more and more pills daily. She was really getting out of control. 11 years into their marriage, Julie divided the master bedroom into two halves, her side and Jason's side. Jason's side was well kept and clean, used for his office during the day, and he lay a spare mattress down at night to sleep on. While Julie's side of the room was a disaster zone, the floor was covered with clothes, bags and bags of prescription pill bottles, and just junk everywhere. It's safe to say that the two were at their breaking point. And how much longer could the two go on like this? Well, at around 11 p.m. on Tuesday, August 7, 2012, the Carlsbad County Police Department received a call from an attorney by the name of Peter Finkst asking them to conduct a welfare check at the Harper home. This Peter guy tells Lieutenant Bruce May that he needs to conduct a welfare check, and when asked why, he just said, you'll see when you get there, and you'll need a warrant. So, with warrant in hand, police arrive at the family home at around 11.16 p.m. on that Tuesday night. The house appeared empty, there's no sign of Julie, her three children, nor Jason at first. Police make their way room by room, searching for anyone at all. And that's when they enter the master bedroom and discover the lifeless body of Jason Harper. He is lying face down on the floor with a sheet, a pillow, and a duffel bag had all been piled on top of his body. The house was cluttered. So, police originally thought it was a home invasion gone wrong, but there didn't appear to be any sign of a break-in. So, police immediately launch an investigation into the murder of Jason, but they know they need to locate Julie first. The following day, police track down Julie and the three children at Julie's father's house. They arrest her on the spot in connection with Jason's murder for obvious reasons, it was later determined that Julie Harper met with her attorney, Peter Finkst, on August 7, 2012, from 4.15 p.m. to 6.45 p.m. During this meeting, Julie told him that she had shot and killed her husband, Jason. Peter instructed his client to preserve the murder weapon, but Julie said she had already buried the gun and couldn't remember where. Not sure why it took Peter finks over four and a half hours to call the police about what he had been told, but luckily he did. Two years after Jason's murder, Julie goes to trial. In the fall of 2014, Julie was charged with first-degree murder, and the jury ends up finding her not guilty of first-degree murder. However, jurors become deadlocked on whether lesser charges should be filed. So, The judge declares it a mistrial. In 2015, her retrial takes place, where she was being charged for second-degree murder. Now, a lot of secrets came out in both trials, but the retrial brought a lot more emotion. Julie's defense team from the beginning said this was your typical battered woman trying to defend herself situation. Julie's sister took the stand and and said that things had gotten pretty bad between the two, and they were definitely headed towards divorce. In a cell phone recording online, Jason can be seen holding one of their sons and yelling at Julie about how he doesn't want to enable her horrible spending habits and her terrible credit score. Now, I don't know what to make of that video. Um, You can probably find it online if you search um, Julie Harper or Jason Harper on YouTube, but I mean, first of all, we're getting it out of context. There's there's really just a short clip of him yelling at Julie, holding one of their children, which I never condone. I never agree with. I, I mean, me personally, I don't want my child to ever see me yelling or screaming at my husband So, or the other way around. So I don't know what to feel about that, but I do have to say, without context in what I know about Jason and what I've read... I don't know that he wasn't just a fed-up husband trying to have a conversation, and it probably just escalated. So, I'm not saying this means that he was some horrible husband, but I wanted to kind of put it in there for you so that you understood kind of where they were at in their relationship, if that makes sense. Now, Julie does take the stand at her own trial, and she tells the story of how her husband ended up dead on the bedroom floor. She said on the morning of August 7th, the two were in a heated argument because she had apparently removed a piece of Jason's computer so that it wouldn't work. Um, don't really understand that. Not sure exactly what that could have been. But instead of trying to fix it, Jason said that he would just go buy a new one. Now, at some point that morning, Jason finds out that Julie had actually messed with the computer, and apparently she had been known to play these stupid games with Jason before. For what reason? I don't know. I don't know what she was getting out of that, but it's just odd, in my opinion. If you watch her on the stand, she's just a strange character in general, in my personal opinion, but anyways... (laughs) Now, their three children were downstairs watching TV while the couple were upstairs arguing. While on the stand, Julie claims that Jason grabbed her by the arms and started shaking her. And at one point, Jason said he was going to actually kill her. Moments later, Julie grabs a gun and fatally shoots her husband. But she said it was an accident. She claims that even though she shot him, she was still worried he would come after her. So during the second trial, it comes out that five days before the incident, Julie filed for divorce and withdrew $20,000 from the couple's bank account. Julie also claims that Jason had raped her multiple times in the past, and on the day of the murder, she felt he was going to rape her again when he was coming towards her during the argument. She said that is when she shot him. Julie's battered woman story seems legit, honestly, I mean, based on what she said on the stand, although nobody ever believed Jason would hurt Julie, like she claimed. But it's Julie's actions after the shooting that raised plenty of suspicions. The biggest issue being that she never called 911. Instead, she covered her husband's body with various items and then takes the kids and leaves. Some reports say she even took her kids out for a casual breakfast afterwards, then dropped them off at her sister's house, which afterwards she went to her dad's house and the two clearly discussed what she needed to do. Because we know she called her lawyer first, but one thing investigators found at her dad's house was a getaway bag of sorts. That contained her and her kids' passports and a lot of money, assuming it's the money that she withdrew from the bank account. In the end, Julie was found guilty of second-degree murder and was sentenced to 40 years in federal prison. So, what are your thoughts? (laughs) Self-defense or cold-blooded murder? If you watch her speak in the videos of her on the stand, as I mentioned, during trial, and even sitting in the courtroom waiting for sentencing, you never see true emotion from her. During sentencing, you can see a few tears, but it's one of those things that you don't see emotion until sentencing. That tells me that the person is only crying at that point because they're scared to go to prison. I hope that she was not physically and sexually abused. I pray that's not the case, because I don't wish that on anyone, regardless of the outcome of that relationship. But if it was, she was definitely not too upset that he was dead. Which, if you're battered and beaten, I can't blame you, but you also can't murder people just because they hurt you. So... I don't know what to feel about this, so I'd obviously love to know your thoughts. Head over to the Instagram page and comment on today's episode, post, and let me know. Now, this next one was one I just had to share. If you are a True Crime Daily fan, then you heard this story about a couple weeks ago on their podcast. I heard it and thought, this Has to be shared. This is one of the most bizarre cases I've ever heard. So let's just go ahead and get into the wild story of Lawrence and Shonda Handley. Lawrence Handley was a business executive from Lafayette, Louisiana. Lawrence was a millionaire by the time he was 30 years old. And as with many millionaires, Hanley had a limited public presence on social media, so I was unable to find a lot of information about him personally prior to the crime, but I do know that he helped launch companies that sold vitamins, energy supplements, and calcium cream. Not sure what that is. Now, it didn't take long for the fortune and fame, if you want to call it that, to get to him. Lawrence quickly became an alcoholic In an interview in 2018, Lawrence said, You give someone like me too much money and no accountability, it's a recipe for disaster. Which, how about foreshadowing there? He definitely gives me the Wolf of Wall Street vibes, but a little less Leonardo DiCaprio looking. (laughs) Now, he did try turning his life around by going to rehab for his alcohol abuse, which appeared to work, and he ended up starting his own rehabilitation company, founding the Towson Recovering Treatment Centers, which were all over the Southeast. And by 2015, the recovery centers were doing so well, in fact, that he took a $20 million offer to sell them. Lawrence and his wife, Shonda, who got married in 2006, were also pillars of their community as well. They ran the Hanley Family Foundation, which focused on fundraising for poor children, cancer patients, and young professionals, hoping to become more involved in their community. Lawrence Hanley's Facebook page described himself as, quote, an eternally optimistic serial entrepreneur who believes that nothing is impossible with God. His Facebook page showed photos of a happy husband and wife doing CrossFit competitions and celebrating family, celebrating Mardi Gras, and just all around a happy-looking couple. But, something changed between the two, or maybe Facebook painted a false picture. You don't say. Because in 2017, in March Abuse allegations came out, and there were several abusive incidents that resulted in multiple restraining orders being filed. Lawrence filed for divorce a month later, accusing his wife of attacking him and threatening him, and hiring a hitman to have him killed. She was later charged with two domestic violence allegations. But it wasn't all on Shonda. She accused Lawrence of attempting to not only track her phone, but also accessing her email and installing spyware on her computer. Shonda also alleged that her then-estranged husband sent threatening messages and allowed others to do so as well. One message from Lawrence allegedly said, quote, You are facing Armageddon, and no court or order will save you. So, at this point, you're probably thinking, where's the crime? Who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy here? We all know divorce can get ugly. Threatening messages, the back and forth, the arguments. Okay, that can happen. That's to be expected. Sadly, anyways, in a lot of cases. So everything takes a dark turn on Sunday, August 6, 2017. At the family home in Lafayette, Shonda was hanging out with her 14-year-old daughter and their next-door neighbor, Michelle Chasen. At some point, two men dressed as appliance store employees in blue uniforms knocked on the door. They had a carpet steamer and asked if they could demonstrate it for her. When Shonda said no, they forced their way into the home at gunpoint. One of them handcuffed the daughter and the neighbor, while the other handcuffed Shonda and placed a bag over her head and then forced her out the door and into the van they were driving. That is when they sped off leaving her daughter and friend behind. Now, as the two men were driving, supposedly they were threatening and hitting her, essentially abusing her the whole time she was in this van. The three were headed east on Interstate 10 towards Baton Rouge when they ran into some traffic. An overturned piece of equipment caused a major traffic jam. So, in a panic, the driver decided to drive on the shoulder of the road. Now, what do you think is going to happen next? you can probably guess that driving down the shoulder of the road during standstill standstill traffic is a risk of you getting spotted by police and being pulled over. So, sure enough, a cop pulls over behind them and starts chasing them. As they're trying to get away from police, they turn off the interstate at Port Allen and head into an industrial fabrication facility. The van hits a dead end and gets stuck in like a muddy, swampy area. At this point, the two men ditch the van, leaving Shonda behind in an effort to escape police, but there was basically nowhere for the two to go. However, they decide to jump into the Intracoastal Canal, which was yards away from where they ditched the van. Unfortunately, both men drowned in the canal. Their bodies were found less than a day later, and a gun that authorities believed belonged to them was found in a nearby pipe. Now, the Abbeville-Paris Sheriff's deputies searched the van and found Mrs. Hanley handcuffed inside. Police began to search for Mr. Hanley, and they find him four days later, on August 11th, held up in a hotel room in Slidell, Louisiana, near New Orleans. According to court records later released, Lawrence was apparently attempting to charter a plane in the hopes of evading authorities. He was immediately arrested, luckily. Shonda later recalled how the officer who initially spotted the van actually thought the van was stolen, which led him to follow the car on the road in the first place. He didn't know anything about the kidnapping, so the officer told Shonda that there was a moment there where he wasn't sure he was going to pursue the van, but thankfully he did. So, come to find out, Lawrence Hanley met the two abductors, Sylvester Bracy, 27, and Arsenio Haynes, also just 27 years old, in Mississippi. He hired them to kidnap his estranged wife. He offered them 19 gold bars as payment. I mean, what is this, Outer Banks? <laughs> Who does that? Anyways, the plan was to have her driven to a camp near Woodville, Mississippi, but authorities said that what Mr. Hanley had planned to do after that was unclear. I think it was pretty obvious, in my opinion, what he wanted to do with Shonda. But during the investigation, Lafayette Police Department Detective Jared Estray found video of Lawrence planning the kidnapping, as well as a checklist he had made. Idiot. Authorities were also able to trace who purchased the handcuffs and who rented the getaway van from Enterprise Rent-A-Car both of which were Lawrence Hanley. Don Necht, a prosecutor with Louisiana's 15th Judicial District who worked on the case, told the Washington Post that the evidence in the case was overwhelming. He also said, quote, Mr. Hanley might have been a good businessman in his day, but he is not a good criminal, which is pretty funny, I have to say. Lawrence Hanley's attorney said he's thankful that no one outside of the two men who drowned was seriously hurt in the kidnapping plot. And my only comment to add to that is, yeah, may not have been physically hurt, but Shonda Hanley will forever be emotionally scarred from this, I'm sure. His attorney went on to tell the New York Times that Mr. Hanley was not thinking clearly when he plotted to have his wife kidnapped because he was high on methamphetamines and cocaine. Which, yes, we all know the effects that drugs can have on someone's brain. However, he bought the handcuffs. He rented the van. He was seen on video meeting with and putting the plan in place with these two random guys. He could have stopped at any moment. He could have stopped at everything at any time. He knew exactly what he was doing. So for him to say he wasn't in the right state of mind, when? When was he not in the right state of mind? Was he on a 36-hour cocaine bender? Like, no, I don't buy that. I'm sorry, I just don't. That's stupid for you to even make that comment. I can't stand when people are like, oh, I made a momentary lapse in judgment. You murdered someone. <laughs> okay, you plotted against them. You had them killed. Like, no, you didn't have a momentary. Like, you had several back-to-back. Don't give me that. And the kidnapping was not the first time Lawrence had faced legal troubles before, Federal court records show that he was charged in 2005 for submitting a fake $22,000 check to a charter plane company. In 2004, a Shreveport building materials company sued Hanley for allegedly failing to pay a $3,000 bill. But these cases are obviously minor in comparison to what Lawrence faces now. Hanley pleaded guilty, by reason of insanity, because of course he did, to multiple charges in 2017. However, in 2018, a judge deemed he was mentally competent to stand trial. On July 27, 2021, Lawrence Hanley took a plea deal that was offered by the prosecutors in the case. He pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree kidnapping, which means 53-year-old Hanley faces 15 to 35 years in prison. As of right now, a sentencing date has not been set, and under the plea deal, Lawrence avoided a charge of aggravated kidnapping, which carries a mandatory life sentence, which tells me that he's 100% guilty of the crime. He's smart to take the plea deal, but it's sad that he could have such a low sentence for what he did. In an interview, Shonda Hanley said it was really unfortunate that Lawrence would not face life in prison. She said, quote, my hope is when he's sentenced, he is given the 35 years. She said, I think my life, my freedom ends when he gets out. Which is just a terrible way to have to think, but I don't blame her. I definitely feel the same way. Attorney Kevin Stockstill said he hoped the plea deal would allow Mr. Hanley to live a reformed life after prison, adding, Mr. Hanley did a lot of good things in his life. You have to consider the good things in his life. You have to consider the good he's done, especially when he's been sober. Stockstill also said, we just feel it's a fair result. It's a fair resolution of the case. Mr. Hanley was able to accept responsibility. Hopefully, it gives the victims some closure and it doesn't put them through a trial, which would have been a pretty stressful event. Having them relive these events was not something we wanted to do. Okay, you know I've got thoughts. Now, that doesn't just piss you off. I don't know what does. I'm pretty sure Shonda would have been just fine reliving that nightmare if it meant she could have put Lawrence behind bars for the rest of his life, not 15 to 30 years. I'm sorry, but that's ridiculous and infuriating. It shouldn't be about being fair in a kidnapping case. The man planned on killing his wife, there's no doubt in my mind about it. So, for him to have a plea deal is just like giving a plea deal to Philip Garrido, who kidnapped and tortured J.C. Lee Dugard for 18 years, or any other murderer I've covered on the show. Just because Lawrence Hanley picked two dumb criminals, and because Lawrence was an idiot himself, doesn't mean he should receive, quote, a fair resolution. Sorry, y'all I got a little fired up on both of these today. But you know how feel about this case. So just because plans don't play out, and just because they raise some money for some people, doesn't mean potential killers should be praised or given a fair chance. So what are your thoughts about both of these cases? I would love to know. Let me know if you're as fired up as I am. (laughs) Leave it in a review wherever you can or comment on today's episode post over on the Instagram page. I would love to know your thoughts. With that said, I hope everyone has a fun and safe Labor Day weekend. I'll be back here in two weeks for another episode. Until then, stay safe out there, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.